0: Members of the Academy and guests, and in particular um, Edward Gleeson representing the sponsor, Mason Hayes and Curran. Um, thank you, for, thank you all for being here this evening. Um, thank you to the Academy for inviting me, uh, for inflicting myself upon you, um, and I hope you'll enjoy the talk. That's the plan, anyway. I hope you'll be able to follow it. Sure, if you're not, you'll get a good sleep anyway, one way or the other. What I'm hoping to do um, with this talk is to shed some light on a dispute that is ongoing currently between the Holy See and the Committee on the Rights of the Child. That's the monitoring body for the United Nations, the 1989 UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. When I talk about the Holy See, the Holy See can mean two things usually. It can mean either the Pope uh, or it can mean the Pope and the Curia, the Institutes of the Curia. The important thing for this purpose is that it is the central, the source of government, the central government of the Catholic Church throughout the world. Um, The Holy See is also responsible for the governance of a tiny little state called the Vatican City State. And I'm asking the question whether what was once a promising journey in terms of support for children's rights and international law on children's rights, I'm asking the question whether that's now going backwards because of a dispute, the seriousness of a dispute that has intensified in the past number of years, particularly in 2014, uh, between the Holy See and the Committee on the Rights of the Child. Um, It's a dispute that currently remains unresolved. I'd like to think that maybe by the end of this evening that maybe along with me you'll have. It discerned a navigable path towards its resolution. Uh, but I think it's a very appropriate time to be asking the question. Why? Because under the reporting regulations, uh, all state parties have to report regularly to the Committee on the Rights of the Child. The Holy See's next report was due at the beginning of this month. It will be delivered late, as all its reports have been. But that's Frankly, that is something that is perfectly, uh, reasonably normal for state parties to the convention. So first, the promising part of the journey. The Holy See was a very staunch supporter of the convention, right from the idea uh, was first mooted and of course the great champion of the convention was a very famous Catholic priest called Canon Joseph Mormon. He was the man who was responsible almost single-handedly for the idea of the, interne- the UN international rights of the child in 1979. And then coming out of that 1979 there was an idea, well maybe we should, there was an old declaration on children going back to rather modest document going back to 1959, and somebody suggested, why don't we make that document, why don't we take that document and turn it into a UN convention? And he was the person who said, no, don't do that. Don't do that. That document now is passé. There are lots of new ideas spinning around about children's rights. Why don't we give it time? why don't we discuss and talk about it? Why don't we have a really broad-based convention? So he became a great champion of what eventually became the 1989 UN convention, the rights of the child. And the Holy See, from the outset, was actively involved in the development of that project, very much a contributor to the uh, travel preparatoire, um, and it helped um, to navigate what was a very difficult path to international consensus on children's rights. The convention itself heralded a new era in children's rights, setting the scene for what UNICEF has described as seeing children as human beings with a distinct set of rights in their own right, uh, rather than as passive objects of care and charity. The Holy See was well-prepared to ratify that convention, to sign it and to ratify it. When you do both, when you sign and you ratify, you become a state party, you become bound. It was one of the first to do it, it was the fourth uh, state party to that convention. It is now the most ratified treaty in the history of the United Nations, with every single member of the United Nations, now a state party, except one. Anybody know what that one is? The United States of America. Um, The prompt prompt ratification by the Holy See was highly significant because by any standard the Holy See is a major contributor to and an influencer of the lives of children worldwide. It governs the faith lives of 17% of the entire global population, that is one and a quarter billion Catholics of whom well over 300 million are child members of the Catholic Church. It is the single biggest non-governmental provider of welfare and education services to children. It operates some 200 schools across five continents. It caters in those schools for 60 million children. And according to the Holy See itself, a majority of those children are not Catholics. So it has a very extensive reach into the lives of children worldwide. And it was exactly that unparalleled, that unequaled global work of education, health and charity, which along with its international influence as what Ban Ki-moon memorably described as being the pulpit of the world, uh, that prompted the United Nations in 1964 uh, to grant the Holy See the special status of permanent observer. There is no such status provided for in the UN Charter. It was created, not, I, funnily enough, not specially for the Holy See. Originally, I think it was originally for Switzerland, but eventually it was offered to the Holy See. Um, it carries that status, carries with it a bundle of privileges and rights. Um, they are less than those enjoyed by members. Uh, but they are substantial enough to have allowed the Holy See to take, as it has, a very active part in the work of the United Nations, the work of its agencies, including ratifying a number of other treaties, human rights treaties besides the Convention on the Rights of the Child. All state parties to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, they are all volunteers. They voluntarily agree in the words of the Convention, and the words are important here, to respect and ensure the Convention's rights to each child within their jurisdiction. And those are important. These are are very tightly controlled words of legal import. And then they undertake all appropriate legislative, administrative and other measures for the implementation of the rights. Now words like jurisdiction, words like implementation are not they're not just pulled out of the air. These are words um, that appear by design and they are anchored in what I would call the most crucial core obligations undertaken by state parties. Their object is very simple. It's to ensure that the convention's principles are applied within each state party's jurisdiction whatever, in Ireland, in in England, in Scotland, in Canada, that they take their laws and they make their laws compatible with what is in the convention. And these are the obligations that the Holy See undertook voluntarily when it ratified and became a state party. Um, It entered a number of reservations, as uh, all state parties are free to do, and those, uh, it entered a declaration and a reservation, um, these protect the Catholic Church's teaching on the rights of the unborn, their teaching on natural family planning, on the rights of parents in relation to children, and they, uh, one of the reservations also protected the sources of law of the Vatican City State. The primary source of law there is the Canon Law, which is the Canon Law of the Universal Church. Like every other state party, the Holy See's obligations are binding, but no state party can be forced to implement changes. They cannot be forced to change their laws. They volunteer, there's a process of persuasion, but uh, the United Nations does not have a step in power to impose, its you enter the spirit of the convention by implementing it voluntarily. What it does have, what the convention does offer, is what I would call a a dialogical uh, mechanism, a reporting mechanism, under which each state um, is obliged to make regular progress reports to the Committee on the Rights of the Child. That's the monitoring body of experts. Um, and They operate through cycles of backwards and forwards communications with the state parties. Um, Some of them are written, some of them are oral. Individuals or civil society groups, NGOs for example, are free to submit their views to the committee on the reports that have been submitted by a state party. And then the committee itself, it can raise questions, it can praise what it regards as progress, it can criticise what it sees as failures, and it can make recommendations. Here in Ireland, for example, our engagement with the committee has led to a new ombudsman for children, a referendum on children's rights, which changed our constitution, a host of changes to our laws, including the abolition in more recent times, and I see one of its great champions in front of me, um, the abolition of the right of parents to plead the defence of reasonable chastisement regarding the use of corporal punishment of their children. Um, Through the more recent phase of this dialogical process, this process of dialogue between the Convention's committee and the Holy See, the Holy See's initial enthusiasm started to wane somewhat and has now given way to really very serious complaints that as a result of what the Holy See says is misinterpretation of its state party obligations by the committee, that the Holy See now has, in its words, grounds for terminating or withdrawing from the treaty or for suspending its operation. You'll see why I've described them as a, as a serious crisis. Thankfully, it seems to have resiled from doing that for the time being, because that really, really would be a backward step. And in a document sent to the, com- to the committee in um, more recent times, in 2014, it has confirmed its willingness, in its words, to implement the treaty, but on terms with which the committee, to implement the convention, but on terms with which the committee really strongly disagrees. The nub of the dispute is that the Committee on the Rights of the Child says, The Holy See has to implement the convention within the internal jurisdiction of the Catholic Church. That is to say, within its teaching and within its canon law, for the benefit of its 300 million child members. The Holy See says, no, we don't. We are only obliged to implement the convention within the tiny territory of the Vatican City State, which has no more than a handful of children. Outside of that territory, it says that all it signed up to was to encourage people of goodwill to support the Convention. So who is right in this dispute? Well, maybe you can make up your own minds at the end of this. The Holy See has engaged in two cycles of communication with the Committee on the Rights of the Child. I think that in that communication, there's both a resolution of the, of the crisis, but there's also the truth of how the crisis developed. Um, The current dispute wasn't in evidence in the first cycle, it came to a head during the second cycle. The first cycle took place in the years 1994 to 1995, the second uh, went from 2010 effectively to 2014. Now There are a number of important differences between the two reporting cycles which I believe impact on the dispute. One is that during the first reporting cycle, in 1994-1995, the issue of clerical child sex abuse was not mentioned either by the Holy See, nor was it raised by the Committee on the Rights of the Child. So, and in the first cycle, uh, during the second cycle, the big changes, of course, during the second cycle, which took place from 2010 to 2014, there was discussion about very little else so going from a situation to where it wasn't discussed at all to where it dominated is the big difference. Another big difference is that in the first reporting cycle, civil society groups do not appear to have lobbied the, con- the Committee on the Rights of the Child with their views on the Holy See's report. So that's a big difference because when we came to the second reporting cycle, there is a plethora of reports from NGOs and civil society groups raising issues on clerical child sex abuse, uh, institutional uh, abuse, the Ryan Report, the Murphy Report, in our case the Magdalene Laundries, for example. Um, Many of these issues on controversial topics were raised with the Committee on the Rights of the Child, specifically in relation to the Holy See's Report. Both in writing and orally, the Committee on the Rights of the Child discussed with the Holy See matters from forced adoptions in Spain to abortion, homosexuality, support for non-traditional families, gender equality, and a whole lot more besides. Now, although at the time, the temper of the debate with the Holy See, whether it was in writing or in the oral sessions in Geneva with its delegation, they appeared outwardly civil, Um, When the Committee on the Rights of the Child issued what are called its concluding observations, which are supposed to bring the cycle to an end and make its recommendations, when they had done that there was an immediate sense of outrage from the Holy See. Um, Archbishop Tomasi, then the Holy See's delegate um, um, at Geneva, he was then the permanent representative to the United Nations mission in Geneva and he led the delegation. Uh, He later complained in a radio interview that he suspected that pro-gay rights groups had influenced the committee and and reinforced, as he said, an ideological line. The Holy See then, they issued a comment on the concluding observations, which was equally scathing um, of the Committee on the Rights of the Child, and um, essentially accusing it of trampling on the right of the Holy See as a faith community to organize and to govern its own internal affairs. A second, another major difference between the first and second reporting cycles is that during the first cycle, and this is a very important one, there was no mention of the implementation of the convention in the Vatican city-state. Uh, that state, as I mentioned, tiny little state. The Pope is it's described by, uh, by in the Vatican City State's website. He's the absolute monarch, um, the smallest independent state in the world. Um, there is no doubt, and the Holy See uh, accepts this, that when, in fact it offers this information, um, that when it ratified the Convention, it did so on behalf of two entities. One was the Vatican City State and one is what I'll probably call the International Holy See, meaning the Holy See responsible for the entire Catholic Church. A tiny, tiny part of its remit is governing the Vatican City State. So the Holy See acknowledges that that when it ratified and became a state party, it did so on behalf of these two, what they describe as distinct, separate entities. Now, in line with long practice, long-standing practice, only the name of the Holy See appears on the official documentation lodged with the United Nations. And the Holy See has never submitted separate reports, one on behalf of the um, Vatican City State and one on behalf of the Holy See. They've always been composite reports. But in fact, they've been easily composite because um, in the first of its reports, made in 1994, the Holy See dismissed The relevance of the Vatican City State uh, to the Convention in two lines, saying that it served solely to provide a basis for the Holy See's autonomy, to guarantee the free exercise of the Holy See's spiritual mission. Um, A few months later, in an oral submission, the Holy See characterised the Vatican City State as a childless curial workplace, absent a civil society where implementation of the convention did not arise. It was just a workplace. The CRC did not challenge that view, it took it at face value, as it's entitled to do. The rest of the 20-page report, however, dealt exclusively with the activities of the International Holy See in its words under the heading, implementation of the convention within the universal Catholic Church. During the second reporting cycle, which began in 2010 or thereabouts, the Holy See characterized the Vatican city-state very differently. There are two optional protocols to this convention. So in 2010, it made a report on the optional protocols and in that, it informed the Committee on the Rights of the Child that there were now some children among the inhabitants of Vatican City State. Didn't quite say how they got there, but apparently children had now appeared on the scene. Uh, Nor did it say how long it had been the case, but it's interesting to note, um, some of them were, you know, they were all obviously under 18, because 18 is the year, that's the year of uh, when they get adulthood and no longer regarded as children. So, but there were quite a number of them who were right up to 17. So, the second periodic report on the committee um, submitted after they had given this information uh, when they were talking about the optional protocol, now included a substantial section on Vatican City-State. And a year later, the going, moving through the reporting cycle, the second reporting cycle, the Holy See then informed the Committee on the Rights of the Child that it had now changed the laws of Vatican City-State to make them compliant with the treaty, uh, with the UN treaties, including, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Yet, for all of that, the bulk of the second report was still absolutely foursquare talking about implementation under that title within the Universal Holy See. Um, during the latter part of this reporting, the second reporting cycle, the Holy See started to use decidedly more legalistic language about its obligations under the treaty. And then it articulated, in terms that one hadn't heard before, it's what it now regarded as what I call a dualistic line of state party obligations. It said this, When it acceded to the treaty, yes, it did so on behalf of two separate entities, Vatican City State, which is territorial, the non-territorial International Holy See. Then it said, you need a territory in which to implement the treaty. We We only have one in the Vatican City State. Outside of the Vatican City State, we do not have a territory. Therefore, it says... Our treaty obligations are fulfilled first and foremost through the implementation of the aforementioned duties within the territory of the Vatican City State. Beyond this geographic territory, the Holy See disseminates principles recognized in the convention to people of goodwill. It does not implement the treaty outside of the Vatican City State. Though it does encourage other people to implement it, apparently. Third, it was well known that when the it says that when the Holy See uh, became a state party to the Convention, it did so um, in order to use its moral influence worldwide, not it did not take on the obligations for every Catholic in the world. It says that the Holy See is a spiritual community, which is true, whose canon law and teachings are protected by international norms on religious freedom um, from being interfered with by outside agencies, that they are entitled to organize and govern their own internal affairs. They are thus outside the remit of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and they're outside the remit of the committee. Um, The the Committee on the Rights of the Child absolutely contradicts this, what I call this dual view of the state party obligations of the Holy See. It says you've got three sets of obligations. That's what you took on. The first one is to implement within the Vatican City State. The second is to disseminate, as all state parties are obliged to do, um, I think under Article 43. All state parties undertake to disseminate the principles widely. But the third thing, and the single most important obligation that you took on, was to bring the convention to life within your own jurisdiction, which is the jurisdiction of the Catholic Church's teaching and canon law, for the benefit of your 300 million child members and those to whom you provide services. So The Committee on the Rights of the Child has recommended, um, in its concluding observations at the end of that cycle, that the Holy See undertake a review of what it calls its normative framework, in particular canon law, with a view to ensuring its full compliance with the Convention. It lists a catalogue of areas where canon law and church church teaching, in in its view, require to be changed. In response to that, the Holy See accused the Committee on the Rights of the Child of what it calls a profundity of confusion, which it says has led to a grave misunderstanding of the Holy See's international obligations under the Convention. Now, what's really surprising about this argument is that so fundamental a matter about what the jurisdiction is of a state party, what the implementation obligations of a state party are, that they should erupt 20 years after ratification. And what is also surprising is the extent to which the official information supplied voluntarily by the Holy See to the Committee on the Rights of the Child should have been probably the very cause of the confusion of which the Holy See complains. And I believe that we can shed light on that process by looking through the official documentation and just through the official documentation between the Holy See and UN treaty monitoring bodies. In particular the Committee on the Rights of the Child but there's one other that's also very important and that is the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Just very briefly before I look at those just want to set the context about why is this important and it's important because Of the sheer number of children under the age of 18 who are subject to the jurisdiction of the Holy See, that is to say its teachings and its canon law. The Catholic Church has an extensive body of teachings, a comprehensive canon law system. They are applicable universally, they bind all members of the Catholic Church. Canon law says people become members on being baptized into the Catholic Church. Membership is for life, semel catholicus, semper catholicus. Infant baptism is the norm. No formal opportunity, of course, is offered subsequently to void that decision that was taken for you by your parents at birth. And I would just make the point that in civil contract law, if you or I as parents undertook a lifelong series of obligations that were imposed upon our children Let's say we took on for them membership of a golf course or a golf club and they were going to have to pay £50,000 per annum in perpetuity. What would happen? When they became sentient, capable of reason, they would likely go to a, ch- go to a court and have that set aside as avoidable or avoid, avoid contract, an oppressive contract. I just make that point because somewhere in back of this I think that's an issue. Church teaching is spread across countless church documents, but it can be found in summary form in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and the canon law um, is found in two codes of canon law, but for our purposes, the one that uh, that impacts 1.2 billion people worldwide, is the 1983 code of canon law of what we call the Latin Catholic Church. Neither document deals with children's rights in any way that resembles systematic But, nonetheless, children's rights are scattered throughout substantial rights, but also, very importantly, very, very substantial obligations are scattered throughout those documents. A simple example can be found, for example, in um, the Catechism, paragraph 2223. It sets out the Catholic Church's teaching in support of corporal punishment of children by parents. Another simple example you can find in the Code of Canon Law, which insists that children of Catholic parents must have their children baptised within the first few weeks of birth. Uh, Canon Law places children mainly under parental control until adulthood, though, I think it's worth saying, in fairness to Canon Law, it also provides a number of autonomous children's rights. These are rights that they have for which they do not require the consent of their parents. It also imposes on children, and this is very important, a really very substantial bundle of obligations, um, the most important being the obligation of obedience to church teachings and laws. Just as important as those obligations and laws, obligations and rights direct directly involving children are, are a whole bundle of rights and obligations of other people, other players in a child's life, which are deliberately designed to impact on the child. And these include obligations of parents, teachers, godparents, sponsors, Catholic schools, pastors, bishops, the Pope, the state, and the Catholic community. Aggregated, these amount to a very significant body of church laws, which, along with church doctrine, directly impact the lives of children and should be, by right, subject to scrutiny on that ground alone. Unlike the Code of Canon Law and the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Convention on the Rights of the Child sets out an explicit, coherent charter of children's rights. And as we said, the Holy See has signed up to those. So let's now turn to the dialogue between the Holy See and the UN monitoring bodies and see to what extent has the Holy See maintained consistency and been consistent from the beginning in articulating this dual position um, and its supporting arguments. Fundamentally, that position insists that from the point of ratification onwards, all discussion of the Holy See's internal jurisdiction, meaning universal Catholic Church teaching and canon law, has been ultra vires the Committee on the Rights of the Child, and I bear that in mind. As we'll see in a moment, in fact, discussions of universal church teaching, the internal jurisdiction of the church, including canon law, including church teaching, have in fact been the norm in the discussions between the Holy See and the Committee on the Rights of the Child, and they have been the norm because that is the information that has been volunteered by the Holy See. What is more, these discussions were initiated by the Holy See, not the Committee on the Rights of the Child, though of course there were, quite naturally, quite serious differences of opinion on issues. But the weight of correspondence tends to show that the Holy See, to date, in its correspondence with the Committee on the Rights of the Child, has conformed to the Committee on the Rights of the Child's model or view of its state party obligations and not the view as currently expounded by the Holy See. Now, whether that's by accident or design, I'll leave it to your, well, to your judgment. A good starting point in examining the correspondence between the Holy See and the United Nations Treaty Monitoring Committees is to look at A convention that has been around for quite a while, and that's the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination. and The Holy See has been a state party to that since 1969, and it's submitted a lot of reports to the convention's monitoring body. I'm going to call it the CERD for the sake of argument, to CERD. In its 19—and I'm going to pick out two reports which are contemporaneous with the reporting cycles to the Committee on the Rights of the Child. In 1993, the Holy See, writing in its 11th and 12th reports to the Surge, said that it responded to its obligations under that treaty through teaching which inspires the conduct of all Catholics over the world. It also went on to say that it had enshrined the principles of the Convention Against Discrimination in Canon 208 of the Code of Canon Law. In its combined 13th to 15th report to the Holy See, to beg your pardon, to the Third, the Holy See, quite unprompted, discussed at length the confluence of canon law with the principles of the Convention on Discrimination, going as far as to state that the provisions of Canon 3 and Canon 7472 should be seen as measures designed to implement the treaty. Under the heading implementation, the Holy See's report offers a long, 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 did I say long? Long list of canons dealing with rights and obligations of the faithful as examples, and this is the Holy See's words, not mine, of how the Holy See has implemented the convention within its internal jurisdiction. No mention of the Vatican city-state. In that report, either. It includes the assertion that Canon 748.2 enshrines the principles of the Convention of freedom of conscience, of religion, which it says is the precondition and principle and foundation of all other freedoms. So here we have the Holy See talking freely about implementing a human rights treaty within internal canon law, within the teaching of the jurisdiction, within the international Holy See. And the report's a cogent example of reporting to the CERD how such a treaty is being implemented within a state party jurisdiction. Turning now to the discussions between the Committee on the Rights of the Child and the Holy See which began in 1994, and to some of the signals which the Holy See sent to the Committee on the Rights of the Child which could have created or contributed to the confusion it complains of. First in this regard, and this is so important, the Committee on the Rights of the Child may however inadvertently have been given wrong information very early on about when the 1983 Code of Canon Law came into operation and how it was impacted by the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The code was drafted over a 20-year period after the Second Vatican Council and it was promulgated and took effect in 1983, six years before the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Now here's what the Committee on the Rights of the Child were told. A named Holy See spokesman at one of the oral hearings in Geneva is reported as saying that the new Code of Canon Law came into effect in 1993 and had taken the Convention on the Rights of the Child and other relevant treaties into account. If such a thing was said, it was of course factually inaccurate, it was grossly misleading, particularly since the Committee on the Rights of the Child conventionally tends to take the views that are given to it by the State Party at face value. There are no experts on canon law in the Committee on the Rights of the Child. They are dealing with an international entity. They trust what what they are told. What is also interesting in any event about that discussion is that the Committee on the Rights of the Child and the Holy See freely discussed canon law without inhibition, without anybody saying, without any delegate from the Holy See saying, actually you can't discuss that or if you are going to discuss it, we're warning you, you're you're treading on areas that are ultra-virus. Turning now to the content of the reports to the Committee on the Rights of the Child, um, beginning with the Holy See's initial report in 1994, it tends to contradict the International Holy See's later insistence that church teaching and canon law as matters... Uh, concerning the internal jurisdiction have always been off limits and that it has never implemented the convention internally, only implements the convention within the Vatican city-state. The Holy See, in that 1994, the first document that that was received by the Committee on the Rights of the Child from the Holy See, the Holy See freely referenced its universal teaching on The family, education, abortion, contraception, sterilization, embryo research, it cross-referenced them meticulously to relevant parts of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. An entire subsection is devoted solely to the International Holy See and is headed implementation of the Convention. The CRC is told that the Pontifical Council for the Family is the curial body most directly concerned with implementation of the Convention. The Holy See instances, implementation measures, which refer directly to church teaching and canon law. There is not a single example of any implementation within the Vatican City State. All examples are of implementation within the jurisdiction of the International Holy See. The Vatican City State, as I mentioned earlier, merits two dismissive lines, maybe three. It was clearly a report fundamentally about internal implementation within the international Holy See. In fact, incidentally, the issue of women priests was raised, and the, well, the, the issue of not having women's priests was raised. May I say, um, by the committee on the rights of the child, and the Church robustly defended its stances it's entitled to do, but at no stage did it say to the committee, look, you're treading on an area that you're not entitled to talk about here. It exhibited a willingness to stand its ground and discuss. Nothing more was heard from the Holy See until 2010, when it reported to the CRC, by which time, as I mentioned a moment ago, evidently things had changed. They'd now acquired children. And uh, the second periodic report, In that report, the Vatican City State merits 9 out of 115 paragraphs, that is about a sixteenth of the entire report. The rest is dedicated once again to state state party implementation within the International Holy See. And Once again, the Committee on the Rights of the Child is told that the major body dealing with implementation within the Curia is the Pontifical Council for the Family. Two years later, the Holy See tells the committee that its use of the word implementation was an error, that what it meant to say was encouragement. It is actually hard to credit that so experienced and long-standing an international player in the world of UN treaties, such a very important contributor may I say to the wording of the convention itself could have made such an error, could have made it twice, and could have taken so long to correct the record. I think it is fair to say that if the Committee on the Rights of the Child believed that the International Holy See was indeed implementing the Convention within its internal jurisdiction, it was likely led to do so on the basis of information supplied to it by the Holy See itself. So the Holy See now says that it will only ever use that word, implementation, in future to describe what it does in the Vatican city-state. That in future, it will simply use the word encourage when it's describing what the Holy See internationally does to ask others to implement. Arguably, and I think it's a good argument, one can say that it looks as if the Holy See has unilaterally changed the wording that it undertook back in 1990. There is no doubt it undertook to implement the convention. It says now, we didn't undertake to implement, except in the Vatican City State, we undertook to encourage. That word does not appear in the convention. I want to draw your attention just for a minute or two before I finish to a number of significant errors um, made by the Holy See and its reports to the Committee on the Rights of the Child, a number of them merit—they merit mention because I hope that they are an example of errors and a sort of a—I wouldn't say a slipshottiness, but um, something that could be could be helpful in terms of trying to find reconciliation. The first error concerns a query raised by the Committee on the Rights of the Child about corporal punishment. It asked the Church about its teaching on corporal punishment. It was told, in the words, here's the words that were given back to it, on the international level the Holy See does not promote corporal punishment. It says that the catechism of the the Catholic Church doesn't mention the words corporal punishment. Both statements are misleading. Both statements are just downright wrong. It is true that the committee, the bigger part, and that the catechism doesn't mention the words corporal punishment. It doesn't need to because it quotes from the book of Sirach in the Old Testament. He who loves his son will not spare the rod. The Holy See has a long tradition of supporting corporal punishment, but it has agreed with the committee that it will take this back to the Holy See, the the, the delegation that went to to the Committee of the Rights of the Child in Geneva in 2014 agreed to bring that matter back for discussion to the Holy See. There's a second one, the second error. The status of illegitimacy was drawn to the attention of the Holy See. Here again, the Holy See said, look, it does not use, the Holy See does not use the term illegitimate on the international level, that is incorrect. Canon law is the international law, it is the international law level of the Catholic Church. Canon 1139 refers to illegitimate children. Three other canons draw distinctions between legitimate and illegitimate children. The court of canon law does not equate legitimate, it does not acknowledge the equality of legitimate and illegitimate children. Here are two areas four square within the internal canon law, the internal teaching of the Catholic Church, openly discussed, and nobody, nobody on the part of the Holy See raised a flag to say, that's a red line that you have crossed. We're only discussing it now because we want to be helpful. That was never said. To be consistent with its own argument, the Holy See should have either stopped discussion on those issues or said... We will continue the discussion on these issues, but on the understanding that it is without obligation on our part. We are now in an area that we are not obliged to discuss, but we will do it because discussion is helpful. Similarly, um, if the Holy See claims that it was always known that outside of Vatican City State it did not implement the convention, that it merely used its moral global voice, Why did it not enter that as a reservation at the very beginning when it had every opportunity to do so? And a question which the Holy See must answer is why it believes it can credibly disseminate to the world at large the principles of a treaty which it has freely and voluntarily ratified on behalf of both the International Holy See and the Vatican City State but refuses to implement within its own internal jurisdiction, particularly when that jurisdiction operates a body of law and teaching that applies directly to over 300 million children. The interface with the Committee on the Rights of the Child has become very testy, to put it mildly. But it seems to me that despite what are effectively mutual accusations of bad faith, but there is a navigable path out of this mess. And the path presents itself precisely because the Holy See has, over the course of its membership of the convention, it's been willing to raise issues and to discuss issues of teaching and of canon law, and to discuss their applicability within the, international, the realm of the International Holy See. It could continue to do that on the basis that, yes, These things are ultra vires, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, but the Committee on the Rights of the Child is a centre of international gravity, of discussion of children's rights and therefore a body like the Holy See has a lot to gain and a lot to offer to being at the heart of such a discussion. It could do it on that basis. That would not satisfy the committee and the rights of the child, but it might satisfy them enough to allow the discussion. It wouldn't certainly satisfy them legally, but it might satisfy them on the basis of simple practicality. The truth of the matter is, it would be, let me just take a very simple example to finish up with. Um, the Holy See argued in that comment that it made in 2014 that when it discussed child sex abuse, the protocols, the new protocols around child clerical sex abuse with the Committee on the Rights of the Child, it did so, but it did so in a situation where it was now outside of its strict obligation under the Convention. And it was dealing, its own words, and dealing with a matter that was ultra-virus the Committee on the Rights of the Child, can you for one moment imagine how credible would the Committee of the Rights of the Child have been had it not raised this issue, had it not discussed this issue, had the Holy See said, can't go there, it's ultra virus, and if the, con- the Committee on the Rights of the Child said, oh excuse us, you're right. That was, that's, a, that's a problem that the Holy See is going to have to address. Church teachings, canon law, They embrace a mix of what I call mutable, that is, changeable, discussable areas, and immutable. I think that in that, in that reality there lies a navigable path. It has been more than willing to discuss the mutable. It needs to continue to discuss the mutable. It can argue about what is mutable and what is immutable, and I think, arguably, that which is immutable is protected by laws of religious freedom and its own sovereign independence, its own own jurisdiction over the immutable. But they really do need, the Holy See, really does need to continue to explore the areas that are mutable, and both parties need to work now to find an agreed basis on which to continue. Obviously, to do that would involve the Holy See and a certain amount of nuancing, to put it mildly, of its 2014 position. Um, but there is a new realpolitik in the world. The realpolitik is that the CRC has, over time, become a very public accountability forum, and not just for the Holy See. For every state party that is a member of that convention, or a state party to that convention, there is no doubt the child abuse scandals put the Holy See under huge pressure. The temperature was raised in those discussions. Of that there is no doubt both ways. But at the end, at the end of the day, the reason the Holy See signed up to this st- to the convention in the first place was to guarantee the best interests of children. That's what the convention exists to ensure. The best interests of children, both The Committee on the Rights of the Child and the Holy See have that at their heart. Over many centuries, canon law, as I have learnt over my years in Rome, was highly, highly influential and in a benign way on the development of children's rights historically. I believe it still can be. One lesson the Holy See must surely have learnt in recent times is that to lag behind international best practice is not a good idea and it is to court serious problems. There's a real, real value for both the Committee on the Rights of the Child and the Holy See to maintain that regular and dynamic dialogue that is part and parcel of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The Committee, a world centre of discussion of children's rights and development of, of children's rights. The Holy See, a world leader without parallel and without peer, in provision of services to children worldwide, with vast experience and a juridic system that binds 300 million children. A rapprochement with the CRC is absolutely essential in the best interests of those children. I believe the difference between them can be bridged. I believe it has to be bridged, that going backwards is quite simply not an option. I'm